0: Some passages are packed full of the glory of Jesus Christ. Some passages are mountain peaks. They're, they're pinnacle passages about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And our passage in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, and I want you to turn to that place, Luke chapter 9, verse 27, of the transfiguration of Jesus, is one of those passages. Let's see if you agree that it's one of those passages as we read it. Follow along as I read in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 and verse 27. Jesus is speaking at this point in verse 27, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now... Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen if you want to see the glory of god look at jesus look at jesus brothers and sisters look at jesus listen to Jesus, so that you can go after Jesus, so that you can grow into the image of Jesus. We've got to look at Him, and we've got to listen to Him. Last week, we began this incredible passage of the transfiguration. We're going to try to finish it today. And we looked at it, and you have an outline we looked at it under four headings. First was the setting of the transfiguration. The setting of the transfiguration. Very briefly, verse 27 But I say to you truthfully that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain. To pray. So I, I take the setting here is that when Jesus prophesied um, eight days earlier that some of those disciples standing there, and we find that there are three of them, that they were going to get a, they, they were not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That was fulfilled on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we see that the transfiguration, the setting of it, is supposed to be a glimpse of the glory of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the kingdom of God. And so, there they are. The setting is, it's night. They're, they're praying, and the disciples are heavy with sleep. And that leads us to the second point last time, was the sight of the transfiguration. What did it look like? What happened? In verse 29, while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different And his clothing became white and gleaming. And we unpack that the face of Christ in the parallel passage shone like the sun, bright like the sun. It was intrinsic, bright glory coming from the face of Christ. Not reflected glory. It was as if the veil of his flesh was pulled away and we saw the, the brightness of the deity of the Son of God, and His clothing grabbed on to the glory and began to flash, the text says, like lightning. That's what they saw, and they were surely awake. They were very heavy with sleep, but believe me, when they were fully awake, they saw His glory, and they were fully awake at the sight of the glory of the person of Christ, and a sneak peek of what he will look like when he comes in power, in glory at his second coming. Third, last week, we began our third heading, the speech during the transfiguration, and we noted that there were going to be three different speeches, three different people speaking, during the transfiguration the first was going to be the speech of the three that is the speech of jesus with moses and elijah because we're let in to actually luke is the only one who lets us in to actually what they were saying together so let's look at that and then we'll look at the other two speeches which will be new material for today So Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus and, and it's really glorious what they were talking about. And I, I, that was last week, so I'm really tempted to just preach for three hours today, but I'm sure we have things to do. I'm not sure what would be more fun than that, but let's read about it in verses 30 and 31. And behold, we're supposed to see it. Behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory... Think about it. Moses and Elijah appearing in glory, that we, those, us, cursed with sin, are someday going to appear in glory, so that when we see Jesus, we're going to somehow be like Him and appear in glory. That's a whole nother sermon. It's incredible for the likes of us. Well, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, and we're speaking of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, and we're finding out that they're talking about his departure. The departure, we, we said last week, was, was Jesus's departure in death, right? His leaving this world, but not only his leaving this world, but his departure, because when you depart, you go somewhere. His departure and his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, To heaven at the right hand of the Father. And that departure was about to fulfill, wasn't about to accomplish something in Jerusalem. And we found out last week that the word departure, believe it or not, was the exodus. The exodus that he was about to accomplish when he went to the cross in Jerusalem and there is Moses and we're supposed to look back to the exodus of the uh, the people of Israel who are in bondage and slavery to Israel and Moses came and here Moses is in our passage he remembers it well and Moses is there and we all uh, and God came and he redeemed his people plague one through nine but then there was right the tenth plague the death angel would come to the firstborn. And it would make no exceptions. If, if you were not covered by the blood, if you were not, the Jews would, would not believe the word of God and hide in their homes and take an unblemished lamb, slaughter that lamb, put the blood above the doorpost. If they would not do that, they would perish like the rest. But if they did in faith, they would hide in their house and the death angel would pass over them. Their firstborn would be spared. And they were then, because Pharaoh didn't like that, they released the people. And, they, and he let them go. And they were released in the bondage to slavery. And Moses is there and Elijah is there. And Jesus realized that he will be the fulfillment of the exodus. Through his death burial and resurrection he would be the passover lamb he would be the pillar of fire that led them out and he would be the redemption of his people from the from their e- sin and death and the waters of the wrath of God pictured by the wall of waters in the Red Sea would never touch, touch them and they would pass through and that forever and that was last week the first speech of the three well Peter's fully awake I don't know how much of this that he heard but let's look as we break new material now first there was the speech of three men now there is the speech of Peter and it's just going to pile on the glory of Christ will pile on today. May the Lord help us to see as much as we can. The speech of Peter, verse 33. And as these were leaving him, because you wonder, you know, how do we respond to these things? Well, Peter Peter responds And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not realizing what he was saying. And so they're awake now. and, And I think we have a tendency to be way too hard on Peter at this moment. Peter, the leader... He's not selfish here. He doesn't say, oh, let's big build six shelters. At least he's got it narrowed down to three. That's good. Um, and, and certainly, he says, Peter says, it's good for us to be here, and I think he's right about that because he is seeing what he thought he would see from one like a son of man, the Christ of God that he knew good and well in his Old Testament. Peter probably spoke with misunderstanding, yes, but better than he knew. In fact, I take that not realizing what he is saying is not completely negative in this place. Look, Peter spoke from urgency, didn't want him to leave, confusion, fear, ignorance, but also expectation and courtesy. And there's hints, yes, there's still misunderstanding as to who Jesus really is, Peter didn't realize all that he was saying. But I think he spoke better than he knew. And I want to handle this text in this way this morning. Why do I give Peter a little more credit? We're going to find out how he completely flopped later. But why do I give him a little more credit? That he was saying something that was consistent with with what he was seeing. One coming like the Son of Man, the Christ of God and may have spoken better than he knew because of what he says in verse 33. Because at the end of verse 33, Peter asked permission to build three tabernacles. The technical term for tabernacle as in the feast of tabernacles. I think the scholar, the best Lucan scholar there is, in my opinion, Daryl Bach, is correct, as well as many others, including D.A. Carson, that Peter is suggesting that they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles right there, right then on the mountain. Okay, now work with me. We know that the presence of Moses up there was connected to the Exodus. And we know that the presence of Elijah and the mind of the Jews would have connections to the future day of the Lord, to the eschatological, that is, end times fulfillment, to the second coming of Christ and the kingdom and the victory. Watch this, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the exodus and anticipated the eschaton and according to Zechariah chapter 14 would be celebrated in the future kingdom so the feast of tabernacles commemorated God's past goodness and provision in the exodus from Egypt and his providential care in the wanderings in the wilderness and the Jews would celebrate this in the feast of tabernacles how would they do it well they would build these tabernacles which had see-through roofs that would be out there overlooking the temple and they would have and they would have they would be out and they would see the stars at night to remind them how they wandered in the wilderness and how they could see the light of the star of God and his Shekinah glory as he as they followed him for Exodus 31:21 says the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night and so they would commemorate the rescue out of Egypt the provision of the leading of the fire the glory cloud so that was There was a a past celebration, but the Feast of Tabernacles also anticipated the end times victory of the Messiah. As one scholar says, well, quotes, another possibility, which I take, is that Peter was building on a concept of the Feast of Tabernacles as a symbol of, not only of the past, but of the future time of rest for Israel, thinking, and don't you think as the lightning burst forth from one like a son of man, thinking that the day of Jesus' future glorification had come. End quotes. I think D.A. Carson is right that the Feast of Tabernacles written about in Leviticus 23 came to be understood as a reference to God's eschatological or end times presence. So, the Feast of Tabernacles looked back to the Exodus and forward to the Eschaton, Moses and Elijah, how God would lead them out of the wilderness into the future glory of the kingdom. God would save, God would leave, God would accomplish, and God would reign. Now, let's build on this. We all remember the book of John, John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 records Jesus standing in the temple teaching during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, John 7 and John 8. Now, in the Feast of Tabernacles, there were two ceremonies. The first was the water-pouring ceremony and the other was the, are you ready? Temple illumination ceremony. An impressive light ceremony in the temple. And that light ceremony was performed in the treasury, where, in the court of women, where Jesus was standing that day and teaching in John 7 and John 8. Now, in the court of women, in the treasury of the temple, were set up, Four enormous torches, think from here to the ceiling, probably about that, with 65 gallons of, or liters of oil that someone that drew the short straw had to climb the ladder like John Johnson to get up there to pour the oil in and light up the torches in this great light celebration. Now the Feast of Tabernacles began at the time of the year when the harvest moon was full and there were clear skies and they would have their tabernacles all there with their see-through seeing, seeing the stars with the Shekinah glory and having the light from these four torches shine out on their evening celebrations, A picture of the Shekinah glory of God. And this would be breathtaking. And it would be, they would have this uh, Light ceremony repeated all week. And nothing in ancient Israel compares to this ancient light celebration for its glory and beauty. It was spectacular. With joy and celebration all night long, the elders of the Sanhedrin performed amazing torch dances... We may not do that here, but they did back then. And the Levitical orchestra played long into the night with huge, steady yellow flames of the enormous lamps flooding the temple, the streets of Jerusalem, piercing the darkness to the hills with the tabernacles that they were camping at. Brilliant light piercing the darkness of, the, of that evening. And then there was morning. And Jesus was there. Imagine Jesus standing there, and now the torches were finally burned out, and there's just smoke from the four torches in the treasury in the place of the women, and Jesus is teaching that morning after this all-night celebration, and Jesus there raises his voice above the crowd and says, I am Ego Ami, the name of God, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus Christ is standing there, and he's saying that lamp symbolizes the pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory. I am the light of the world. I am the Shekinah glory. I am the cloud that led you by day. I am the cloud that led you by night. I am the angel of the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am here. I have come to save you by my own right hand. I am that light. I am Yahweh standing before you. This is the message of the transfiguration. God's presence was visibly seen in the flashes of the cloud. The Israelites saw God's glory and now in Jesus Christ, God is revealing Himself again. Revealing His glory. His glory is sheathed in flesh. But not this day. Not on the mountain this day. So that John can say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 9, what is the whole point? Herod says, who is this man? Jesus says, who do the crowd say that I am? Jesus then says, but who do you say that I am? And the Father answers with a resounding answer to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Passover Lamb of the Exodus. Jesus, the Christ of the future eschatological kingdom. The Shekinah glory has come. The light of the world is here. And and He, Jesus, is none other than Yahweh Himself. And yet somehow distinct from Yahweh, the Father. Somehow distinct from the Father. But Yahweh, nonetheless, Is this not glorious? Well, we've seen the speech of the three. We've seen the speech of Peter. And now we see the speech of the Father. And this confirms that we're on the right track. Four, the speech of the Father. Now, Peter is interrupted. Take a look at what happens in verse 34. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So the cloud appears, and think of this cloud on the mountain, just settling down. And in Matthew it says, and it's night out, that there's flashes of lightning from this cloud that settles. So they can't see anybody and they can't see Moses and Elijah anymore. And that term for overshadow in the Greek right here is used to describe the glorious Shekinah glory, the presence of God overshadowing and settling. There it is. There it is. Settling on the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and verse 35. And then the glory of God filled the tabernacle and that is what we are seeing here and so with this cloud we have a reminder of the past in the pillar of the cloud we have a reminder of the future in Daniel's one like a son of man who will come on the clouds and no one comes on the clouds but Yahweh himself and we have a reminder not just of the past in the cloud, but not of the future of the cloud, but we have the reminder of the presence in the cloud. The presence, can you believe it? For 600 years they hadn't seen it, that this cloud settles in on them, not separated from them any longer, but settles over them. The presence of God just settles on them. Past and present and future implications of the cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory that settles on this group of guys on the mountain. Jesus flashes forth Shekinah glory. He is the light of the world. And the Father settles in glory. Same glory. Same essence of glory, yet distinct. Whispers of our triune God. And then the Father speaks. The speech of God the Father, a voice booms from the midst of the cloud. Verse 35. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Three aspects of the speech of the Father. Right there. Number one, this is my son. No one would dare to say that of God, that they were my father. Yes, we're all children of God, but no, no, you don't say, and not in Judaism, you don't say, okay, I am the son, he is my father. This is unique. He is the unique son And this, of course, is a reference to Psalm chapter 2. Just write this reference down. It's a reference to Psalm 2 and verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, this is the Messiah speaking, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O oh kings, show discernment. Take warning, O oh judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. How do you worship just a mere man? Do homage to the Son that he will not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the Father is affirming the kingly messiahship of Jesus from Nazareth. And he's also affirming not only is the Messiah, but he is the... and, and, And we get a sneak peek in Psalm 2 of the glory of the coming kingdom but also that he has this unique relationship. He calls him my son, and he's talking now about really the person of Christ and who he is. Do you remember when Jesus was 12 years old and he's, he was in the temple and he was learning from everybody and got lost? His parents left without him? Why? Because he's sitting, and he, he said at that place at age 12, I, hey mom, I must be in my father's house. No one would speak like that in Judaism. It's a shock to call God his own father. But when the glory cloud descended, God the Father said, this is my one and only son. He is my son. We are of the same essence. He is equal with me. He will do my work. My own right hand has come to accomplish your deliverance. You are my son, the one who shares in my Shekinah glory. Not only only the Messiah's kingship here, but the Messiah's divine nature. And then the Father says, my chosen one. This is incredible. A whole ten sermons could be preached on this. It's the perfect tense, which is this. Here's how it could be translated. One who has been elected. One who has been chosen. In the past, can you believe it? There was a man chosen for this. One. You say that's exclusive. One man chosen for this. To be, have a human nature welded to the divine nature. From before times eternal, the one who past tense has been chosen with very present implications. As he's about to turn his face like flint and head to the cross. My chosen one, which is, as one scholar said, well, I think he's absolutely right, refers to Isaiah 41, 42, verse 1. Just write it down. Isaiah 42, verse 1, which says, by the way, before I read Isaiah 42, 1, the one who has been chosen, present, uh, does. Is God going to mess this up? Do you think that his chosen one can actually save you and get it done? Is there any chance that you're going to be lost if you're a believer? Isaiah 42 verse 1 is where this comes from. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, In whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Oh, there's his glory. He will win in history. There is a second coming glory come. There is a winning in history. But in this context, he is my servant. My servant. And if we read on in Isaiah, because we're in chapter 42 now and chapter 53 is coming. we read on in Isaiah, we will indeed see that, yes, we get a glimpse of His glory. The glory of the coming King. The glory of one like a Son of Man. But there is a misunderstanding. There is the shock of the Scriptures that this one glorious Son of Man is the suffering Servant who would give his life a ransom for many. Just as D.A. Carson said, quotes, this glorious experience on the mountain is also qualified by the mission of the suffering servant who will be rejected, end quotes. Just like in Isaiah. This is my son, my chosen one. Okay, now let me just stop here. Let's just rest for a second. How can you be flippant with Jesus? Bu- he's your buddy you shave with. He's the guy you can take or leave. You got your fire insurance, but he goes on the shelf while you live your life. Does this sound like one that, to whom we can do that with? What is our response to these things? The text tells us, listen to him. That's it. That's it. Like the other two parts of speech of the Father... This has direct connection to the Old Testament as well. Almost a quote, actually, from a passage we'll cover in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says this. Listen to him. Look at verse 15. Don't turn to it, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. He's speaking to Moses. Moses, you're not it. The Lord your God will raise up for you, Moses needs this one, for you, a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. We can't dig the glory, the brightness, the thundering. Why do you think they were alone on the mountain and only three saw? Do you think the crowds could have taken an unveiled Christ? Do you think you can stand in glory in heaven without a new body fit for it? They couldn't either. Moses, you can't. You're not even going to enter the promised land. But there will come a day, and here he is talking to this one. Oh, you go. I can't believe it's happening. But look what he says. I don't want to hear the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die, the Lord said to me. They have spoken well. Yep, they can't handle it. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak all that I command him without fail and without sin. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him Verse 26 of Luke 9 for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory comes in his glory and the glory of the Father. Same glory but distinct. Jesus is this prophet. He will be raised up and was raised up in the future. Listen to him. Listen to him. And he's alluding back to Deuteronomy 18 in the context of Moses. So Moses spoke of him. Elijah would go before him preparing his way. But Jesus is unique. He's the final prophet, the eternal priest. He's the sacrificed himself. He's the final Davidic king. He is the son of God, the one who has been chosen. The God-man. The radiance of the bright glory, flashing light, lightning from his face and clothing. The same bright settling, Shekinah glory of the Father, yet somehow distinct from the Father, yet sharing his glory, sharing his essence, and sharing his purpose with perfection. This is incredible. No wonder Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Who can say that? Can you say that? Can a mere man say that? There's only one takeaway for us as we see the glory of Christ. Here it is, that we maybe want to be silent a little bit more than we are and listen to Him. Which leads me to the final point, the solitude of the transfiguration. The solitude of the transfiguration. First, Jesus is alone. In verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. In other words, the cloud lifted, the cloud lifted. And Matthew puts it like this in his account of the transfiguration in chapter 17, verse 8. Listen to how the Greek is so emphatic. After the cloud lifted, the disciples that were there, they saw no one except Jesus himself Alone. Jesus is alone. Jesus is the pinnacle. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the true path, the final and last mediator for God's people. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the filling up of all the Old Testament prophets, all the Old Testament law. For Jesus himself, said in Matthew 5:17, "Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill." And Jesus would speak with the authority as the new Moses. Jesus would speak with the authority of God himself. "You have heard it said, but I say to you, listen to him." So, while Peter spoke better than he knew, knew, and it is confusing when all three have some glory showing from them, which is incredible if you think about it. No, no, they're not equal. In fact, when the cloud is gone, Moses and Elijah are gone from the scene and Jesus is alone. He says, you listen to him. Hear the words of God. You listen to him. Jesus stands alone in authority. Jesus stands alone in glory. Jesus stands alone in power. Listen to me carefully. The whole world and all of its religions need to hear this. If you're listening to me, Jesus stands alone. There is no one like him. But he will also stand alone. He will be left alone. The suffering servant will be a solitary sufferer who, since he is alone, will in a very real way stand alone and face the cup of the wrath of God alone. Really alone. I don't know what this means, but really alone. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He stands alone. And secondly, the disciples are silent. Yeah, And they kept silent. Even Peter. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days of any of the things which they had seen. The last word translated the idea of being silent, which they had seen. It's it's a perfect tense. It's very unique here. It's saying the glory of God, that the three disciples who saw this never forgot that day. It carried with them. It fueled their ministries. They never forgot, and they kept silent about what they had seen. Now, let's think about this. The glory of Christ will forever change us if we've seen it, and if we continue to see it. So that leads to some implications as we drive this home and get ready for the Lord's table. Number one, the glory of his departure is a word of comfort. The glory of his departure is a word of comfort. Get ready. You're going to have to go quickly. If you're fast, you can turn. And I heard a great exposition at a pastor's conference on Hebrews chapter 2, and it was God's providence. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to hit some passages. And bring this together for us, for our lives today. Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to find verse 5. Hebrews, we're going to talk about the glory of first, his departure. That is, the glory of his death. The glory of his death is a word of comfort here. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For he... Did not subject to angels the world to come. The world to come is going to be subject to mankind. Not angels. Concerning which we are speaking. Verse 6. But one has testified somewhere. That's kind of funny. That's Psalm 8. But but one has testified somewhere saying, and this is Psalm 8, a quote. Verse 6. What is man that you remember him? Who are we? fallen sinners, ruined sinners that you remember Him or the Son of Man that you are concerned about Him? Why is God concerned about us? Well, let's find out about us in verse 7. This is about us, not about Jesus in verse 7. Verse 7, you have made Him for a little while lower than the angels. That's us. We are made for a little while lower than the angels. You know why? We're not ruling them now because of sin and the curse of sin and the fallenness of Adam. You have crowned him with glory and honor. That's us. That's our future. But right now, we don't see it. And we have, and look at this, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. That's us ruling with him. In glory, appointed over the works of your hands, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. This is us, not Jesus. For in subjecting all things to him, that is mankind, he left nothing that is subject to him. But now, and uh, yeah, now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. How... Are you ruling the nations? But we do see Him, capital H. Now it's talking about Jesus. We do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Stop there. Are you kidding me? Jesus humbled Himself like that, that our state... Now, I'm not saying He was ruined with sin, but hear me. Jesus entered into the state of this cursed world, experiencing hunger and hardship and rejection and abandonment and all of this stuff. He entered into the state. He identifies with us in our weakness. He was made for a little while lower than the angels. Who is that? Namely, Jesus. Jesus. Because, but watch this, because of the suffering of death, he will be, he, he's crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so it's saying that it was fitting for him, verse 10, for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Oh, do we see the glory of his death as a word of comfort for us? He entered into this stuff. He came into weakness. He's not ashamed to call you brother. Brother. He's not ashamed to call you sister. Consider Him at night praying to His Father, depending on His Father, realizing that it's necessary that He must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and rise from the dead on the third day in order to bring many sons to glory. Imagine the God-man, in respect to His humanity, In answer, I believe, to the prayer was encouraged by none other than Moses and Elijah, and encouraged himself of the surety and the certainty of his victory if he would set his face and go, which is about to happen in Luke chapter 9 strengthened and comforted by the words of Moses and Elijah, depending in prayer, receiving encouragement to press on and himself in respect to his humanity, hoping in the glory to be revealed, the joy set before him as a man he pressed south to Jerusalem to secure your exodus through his death. I want you to be considered in respect to his humanity that he was willing to to take upon flesh, to hide his glory, and walk the path of suffering, rejection, and death for you. I don't understand it all, but he was made a little lower like you, yet without a sin, so he understands you. He is not ashamed to call you brother and to call you sister. This is a word of comfort in this passage. And there is a word There's the glory of his deity, which is a word of certainty and challenge. And we'll close with this. The glory of his deity is a word of certainty and challenge. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, Peter writes of the experience of the transfiguration. In light of what I've said, I want you to hear these words, and I want you to just be blown away by them. Are you ready? Listen up now. Here it is. This is the apostolic interpretation and implication for our lives. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now watch verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit Spoke from God. Now hear me on this. Oh, this is incredible. Do we realize what we have in this book? Peter is saying that he is more confident that he heard it right, that he wasn't just mixed up from maybe sleeping too long or his his own emotions or his own senses getting it wrong. He had something more sure, a word more sure, in this Bible, in the book, than he had heard, or in the details of it, from the holy mountain. Oh, God says, listen to him. How do we do it? How do we do it? We listen to him, brothers and sisters, by listening to his word, by believing it, by doing it, by by heeding the warnings, by hoping in the promises, by seeing his glory. Brothers and sisters, you are going to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation in the book of God through the Spirit of God. And one author named Davis is right to challenge us to be careful putting this book on the shelf and trying to seek and see His glory in our experiences or maybe even mountaintop experiences like the transfiguration instead of a steady following of Jesus Christ and not being ashamed of Him and His words and getting our nose in the book and attending to the preaching of the Word of God. This is where we see His glory. This is how we listen to Him. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, As we see, like they did on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were changed, perfect tense. They were never the same. And when you come to the book of God, through the Spirit of God, and see the glory of God, with the eyes open and the veil dropped off as you read the Word of God, guess what happens? You are transformed more and more into His glory, but only as you listen to Him. And that's why 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 says this, and I believe Paul is thinking of this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to this. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the... At the reading. We're talking about reading the Bible. Until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant... The same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, We're talking about reading. Beholding as in a mirror mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. What? From glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And then he goes on, therefore since we receive this ministry, we don't lose heart. Yeah, I'm not going to lose heart. This is the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God transforming the people of God into the image of Christ from glory to Glory. For don't, we don't preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to him let us pray oh Father.